Chapter 2, Part 2 of Apologia Pro Vita Sua by John Henry Cardinal Newman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bill McGillivray. I have spoken of my firm confidence in my position, and now let me state more definitely what the position was which I took up, and the proposition about which I was so confident. These were three. One. First was the principle of dogma. My battle was with liberalism. By liberalism I mean the anti-dogmatic principle and its developments. This was the first point on which I was certain. Here I make a remark. Persistence in a given belief is no sufficient test of its truth, but departure from it is at least a slur upon the man who has felt so certain about it. In proportion, then, as I had in 1832 a strong persuasion of the truth of opinions which I have since given up, so far a sort of guilt attaches to me, not only for that vain confidence, but for all the various proceedings which were the consequence of it. But under the first head I have the satisfaction of feeling that I have nothing to retract and nothing to repent of. The main principle of the movement is as dear to me now as it ever was. I have changed in many things, in this I have not. From the age of fifteen, dogma has been the fundamental principle of my religion. I know no other religion. I cannot enter into the idea of any other sort of religion. Religion, as a mere sentiment, is to me a dream and a mockery. As well can there be filial love without the fact of a father, as devotion without the fact of a supreme being. What I held in 1816 I held in 1833, and I hold in 1864. Please God, I shall hold it to the end. Even when I was under Dr. Waterley's influence, I had no temptation to be less zealous for the great dogmas of the faith, and at various times I used to resist such trains of thought on his part as seemed to me, rightly or wrongly, to obscure them. Such was the fundamental principles of the movement of 1833. 2. Secondly, I was confident in the truth of a certain definite religious teaching based upon this foundation of dogma, namely that there was a visible church with sacraments and rites which are the channels of invisible grace. I thought that this was the doctrine of scripture, of the early church and of the Anglican church, here again I have not changed in opinion. I am as certain now on this point as I was in 1833, and have never ceased to be certain. In 1834 and the following years, I put this ecclesiastical doctrine on a broader basis. After reading Laud, Bramhall, and Stillingfleet, and other Anglican divines on the one hand, and after prosecuting the study of the fathers on the other, but the doctrine of 1833 was strengthened in me, not changed. When I began the tracts for the times, I rested the main doctrine, of which I am speaking, upon the scripture, on the Anglican prayer book, and on St. Ignatius' epistles. 1. As to the existence of a visible church, I especially argued out the point from scripture, in tract 11, namely, from the Acts of the Apostle and the Epistles. 2. 
As to the sacraments and sacramental rites, I stood on the prayer book. I appealed to the ordination service, in which the bishop says, Receive the Holy Ghost, to the visitation service, which teaches confession and absolution, to the baptismal service, in which the priest speaks of the child after baptism as regenerate, to the catechism, in which the sacramental communion is receiving verily and indeed the body and blood of Christ, to the commination service, in which we are told to do works of penance, to the collects, epistles, and gospels, to the calendar and rubric portions of the prayer book, wherein we find the festivals of the apostles, notice of certain other saints, and days of fasting and abstinence. 3. And further, as to the episcopal system, I found it upon the epistle of St. Ignatius, which inculcated it in various ways. One passage especially impressed itself upon me, Speaking of cases of disobedience to ecclesiastical authority, he says, A man does not deceive that bishop whom he sees, but he practices rather with the bishop invisible, and so the question is not with flesh, but with God, who knows the secret heart. I wish to act on the principle to the letter, and I may say with confidence that I never consciously transgressed it, I love to act as feeling myself in my bishop's sight, as if I were in the sight of God. It was one of my special supports and safeguards against myself. I could not go very wrong while I had reason to believe that I was in no respect displeasing him. It was not a mere formal obedience to rule that I put before me, but I desired to please him personally, as I considered him set out over me by the divine hand. I was strict in observing my clerical engagements, not only because they were engagements, but because I considered myself simply as a servant and instrument of my bishop. I did not care much for the bench of bishops, except as they might be the voice of my church, nor should I have cared much for a provincial council, nor for the diocesan synod presided over by my bishop. All these matters seemed to me to be jure ecclesiastico, but what to me was jure divino was the voice of my bishop in his own person. My own bishop was my pope. I knew no other, the successor of the apostles, the vicar of Christ. This was but a practical exhibition of the Anglican theory of church government, as I had already drawn it out myself after various Anglican divines. This continued all through my course, when at length in 1845 I wrote to Bishop Wiseman, in whose vicarate I found myself, to announce my conversion. I could find nothing better to say to him than that I would obey the Pope as I had obeyed my own bishop in the Anglican Church. My duty to him was my point of honor. His disappropriation was the one thing which I could not bear. I believe it to have been a generous and honest feeling, and in consequence I was rewarded by having all my time for ecclesiastical superior, a man whom, had I had a choice, I should have preferred, out and out, to any other bishop on the bench, and for whose memory I have a special affection. Dr. Baggett, a man of noble mind, and as kind-hearted and as considerate as he was noble, 
He ever sympathized with me in my trials which followed. It was my own fault that I was not brought into more familiar personal relations with him than it was my happiness to be. May his name be ever blessed. And now, in concluding my remarks on the second point, on which my confidence rested, I repeat that here again I have no retraction to announce as to its main outline. While I am now as clear in my acceptance of the principle of dogma as I was in 1833 and 1816, so again I am now as firm in my belief of a visible church, of the authority of bishops, of the grace of the sacraments, of the religious worth of works of penance, as I was in 1833. I have added articles to my creed, but the old ones which I then held with a divine faith remain. 3. But now, as to the third point on which I stood in 1833, and which I have utterly renounced and trampled upon since, my then view of the Church of Rome, I will speak about it as exactly as I can. When I was young, as I have said already, and after I was grown up, I thought the Pope to be Antichrist. At Christmas 1824-25, I preached a sermon to that effect, but in 1827, I accepted eagerly the stanza of the Christian year, which many people thought too charitable. Speak gently of thy sister's fall. From the time that I knew Froude, I got less and less bitter on the subject. I spoke successively, but I cannot tell on what order or at what dates, of the Roman Church as being bound up with the cause of Antichrist, as being one of the many Antichrists foretold by St. John, as being influenced by the spirit of Antichrist, and as having something very anti-Christian or unchristian about her. From my boyhood and in 1824 I considered after Protestant authorities that St. Gregory I, about A.D. 600, was the first pope that was Antichrist, though in spite of this he was also a great and holy man. But in 1832-33 I thought the Church of Rome was bound up with the cause of Antichrist by the Council of Trent. When it was that in my deliberate judgment I gave up the notion altogether in any shape that some special reproach was attached to her name, I cannot tell, but I had a shrinking from renouncing it, even when my reason so ordered me, from a sort of conscience or prejudice, I think up to 1843. Moreover, at least during the tract movement, I thought the essence of her offense to consist in the honors which she paid to the Blessed Virgin and the saints, and the more I grew in devotion, both to the saints and to Our Lady, the most impatient was I at the Roman practices as if glorified creations of God must be gravely shocked, if pain could be theirs, at the undue veneration of which they were the objects. On the other hand, Herald Fouda, in his familiar conversations, was always tending to rub the idea out of my mind. In a passage of one of his letters from abroad, alluding, I suppose, to what I used to say in opposition to him, he observed, I think people are injudicious who talk against the Roman Catholics for worshipping saints and honouring the Virgin, and images, etc. These things may perhaps be idolatrous, I cannot make up my mind about it, 
but to my mind it is the carnival which is the real practical idolatry as it is written the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play the carnival i observed in passing is in fact one of those very excesses to which for at least three centuries religious catholics have ever opposed themselves as we see in the life of st philip to say nothing of the present day but this we did not then know moreover from frude i learned to admire the great medieval pontiffs and of course when i had come to consider the council of trent to be the turning point of the history of christian rome i found myself as free as i was rejoiced to speak in their praise then when i was abroad the sight of so many great places venerable shrines the noble churches much impressed my imagination and my heart was touched also making an expedition on foot across some wild country in sicily at six in the morning i came upon a small church i heard voices and i looked in it was crowded and the congregation was singing of course it was the mass though i did not know it at this time and in my weary days at palermo i was not ungrateful for the comfort which i had received in frequenting the church nor did i ever forget it then again her zealous maintenance of the doctrine and the rule of celibacy which i recognized as apostolic and her faithful agreement with antiquity in so many other points which were dear to me was an argument as well as a plea in favour of the great church of rome thus i learned to have tender feelings towards her but still my reason was not affected at all my judgment was against her when viewed as an institution as truly as it ever had been this conflict between reason and affection i expressed in one of the early tracts published in july eighteen thirty four considering the high gifts and the strong claims of the church of rome and its dependencies on our admiration reverence love and gratitude how could we withstand it as we do how could we refrain from being melted into tenderness and rushing into communion with it but for the words of truth itself which bid us prefer it to the whole world he that loveth father and mother more than me is not worthy of me how could we learn to be severe and execute judgment but for the warnings of moses against even a divinely gifted teacher who should preach new gods and the anathema of st paul even against angels and apostles who should bring in a new doctrine records number twenty four my feeling was something like that of a man who is obliged in a court of justice to bear witness against a friend or like my own now when i have said and shall say so many things on which i had rather be silent as a matter then of simple conscience though it went against my feelings i felt it to be a duty to protest against the church of rome but besides this it was a duty because the prescription of such a protest was a living principle of my own church as expressed not simply in a catena but by a consensus of her divines and by the voice of her people moreover such a protest was necessary as an integral portion of her controversial basis for i adopted the arguments of bernard gilpin that protestants were not able to give any firm and solid reasons of the separation besides this to wit 
that the Pope is Antichrist. But while I thus thought such a protest to be based upon truth, and to be a religious duty, and a rule of Anglicanism, and a necessity of the case, I did not at all like the work. Harel Froday attacked me for doing it, and, besides, I felt that my language had a vulgar and rhetorical look about it. I believed and really measured my words when I used them, but I knew that I had a temptation, on the other hand, to say against Rome as much as ever I could, in order to protect myself against the charge of popery. And now I come to the very point for which I have introduced the subject of my feelings about Rome. I felt such confidence in the substantial justice of the charges which I advanced against her, that I considered them to be a safeguard and an assurance that no harm could ever arise from the freest exposition of what I used to call Anglican principles. All the world was astounded at what Froude and I were saying. Men said that it was sheer popery. I answered, true, we seem to be making straight for it, but go on a while, and you will come to a deep chasm across the path, which makes real approximation impossible. And I urged in addition that many Anglican divines had been accused of popery, yet had died in their Anglicanism. Now the ecclesiastical principles which I professed, they had professed also, and the judgment against Rome which they had formed, I had formed also. Whatever deficiencies then had to be supplied in the existing Anglican system, and however boldly I might point them out, anyhow that system would not in the process be brought nearer to the special creed of Rome, and might be mended in spite of her. In that very agreement of the two forms of faith, close as it might seem, would really be found, on examination, the elements and principles of an essential discordance. It was with absolute persuasion on my mind that I fancied that there could be no rashness in giving to the world in fullest measure the teaching and writings of the fathers. I thought that the Church of England was substantially founded upon them. I did not know all that the fathers had said, but I felt that, even when their tenets happened to differ from the Anglican, no harm could come of reporting them. I set out what I was clear they had said. I spoke vaguely and imperfectly of what I thought they said, or what some of them had said. Anyhow, no harm could come of bending the crooked stick the other way in the process of straightening it. It was impossible to break it. If there was anything in the fathers of a startling character, this would be only for a time. It would admit of explanation, or it might suggest something profitable to Anglicans. It could not lead to Rome. I expressed this view of the matter in the passage of the preface to the first volume, which I edited, of the Library of the Fathers. Speaking of the strangeness at first sight, in the judgment of the present day, of some of their principles and opinions, I bid the reader go forward hopefully, and not indulge his criticism till he knows more about them than he will learn at the outset. Since the evil, I say, is in the nature of the case itself, we can do no more than have patience and recommend patience to others, and with the racer in the tragedy, look forward steadily and hopefully to the event. Tafoyer, Tafeli, 
pestaine fish royorene when as we trust all that is inharmonious and anomalous in the details will at length be practically smoothed such was the position such the deference such the tactics by which i thought that it was both incumbent on us and possible for us to meet that onset of liberal principles of which we were all in immediate anticipation whether in the church or in the university and during the first year of the tracts the attack upon the university began in november eighteen thirty four was sent to me by dr hampton the second edition of his pamphlet entitled observations on religious dissent with particular reference to the use of religious tests in the university in this pamphlet it was maintained that religion is distinct from theological opinion pages one twenty eight thirty etc that it is but a common prejudice to identify theological propositions methodically deduced and stated with the simple religion of christ page one that under theological opinions were to be placed the trinitarian doctrine page twenty seven and the unitarian page nineteen that a dogma was a theological opinion formally insisted on pages twenty and twenty one that speculation always left an opening for improvement page twenty two that the church of england was not dogmatic in its spirit though the wording of its formularies might often carry the sound of dogmatism page twenty three i acknowledge the receipt of this work in the following letter the kindness which has led to your presenting me with your late pamphlet encourages me to hope that you will forgive me if i take the opportunity it affords of expressing to you my very sincere and deep regret that it has been published such an opportunity i could not let slip without being unfaithful to my own serious thoughts on the subject while i respect the tone of piety which the pamphlet displays i dare not trust myself to put on paper my feelings about the principles contained in it tending as they do in my opinion altogether to make shipwreck of christian faith i also lament that by its appearance the first step has been taken towards interrupting that peace and mutual good understanding which has prevailed so long in this place and which if once seriously disturbed will be succeeded by dissensions the more intractable because justified in the minds of those who resist innovation by a feeling of imperative duty since that time peyton has got into the chariot of the sun we alas can only look on and watch him down the steep of heaven meanwhile the lands which he is passing over suffer from his driving such was the commencement of the assault of liberalism upon the old orthodoxy of oxford in england and it could not have been broken as it was for so long a time had not a great change taken place in the circumstances of that counter-movement which had already started with the view of resisting it for myself i was not the person to take the lead of a party i never was from first to last more than a leading author of a school nor did i ever wish to be anything else this is my own account of the matter and i say it neither as intending to disown the responsibility of what was done or as if ungrateful 
to those who at that time made more of me than i deserved and did more for my sake and at my bidding than i realized myself i am giving my history from my own point of sight and it is as follows i had lived for ten years among my personal friends the greater part of the time i had been influenced not influencing and at no time have i acted on others without their acting upon me as is the custom of a university i had lived with my private nay with some of my public pupils and with the junior fellows of my college without form or distance on a footing of equality thus it was through friends younger for the most part than myself that my principles were spreading they heard what i said in conversation and told it to others undergraduates in due time took their degree and became private tutors themselves in their new status they in turn preached the opinions with which they had already become acquainted others went down to the country and became curates of parishes then they had down from london parcels of the tracts and other publications they placed them in the shops of local booksellers got them into newspapers introduced them to clerical meetings and converted more or less their rectors and their brother curates thus the movement viewed with relation to myself was but a floating opinion it was not a power it never would have been a power if it had remained in my hands years after a friend writing to me in remonstrance of the excesses as he thought them of my disciples applied to me my own verse about st gregory nazianzen thou couldst a people raise but couldst not rule at the time that he wrote to me i had special impediments in the way of such an exercise of power but at no time could i exercise over others that authority which under the circumstances was imperatively required my great principle ever was live and let live i never had a staidness or dignity necessary for a leader to the last i never recognized the hold i had over young men of late years i have read and heard that they even imitated me in various ways i was quite unconscious of it and i think my immediate friends knew too well how disgusted i should be at such proceedings to have the heart to tell me i felt great impatience at our being called a party and would not allow that we were such i had a lounging free and easy way of carrying things on i exercised no sufficient censorship upon the tracts i did not confine them to the writings of such persons as agreed in all things with myself and as to my own tracts i printed on them a notice to the effect that any one who pleased might make what use he would of them and reprint them with alterations if he chose under the conviction that if their main scope could not be damaged by such a process it was the same with me afterwards as regards other publications for two years i furnished a certain number of sheets for the british critic from myself and my friends while a gentleman was editor a man of splendid talent who however was scarcely an acquaintance of mine and had no sympathy with the tracts when i was editor myself from eighteen thirty eight to eighteen forty one in my very first number i suffered to appear a critique unfavourable to my work on justification 
which had been published a few months before from a feeling of propriety because i had put the book into the hands of the writer who so handled it afterwards i suffered an article against the jesuits to appear in it of which i did not like the tone when i had to provide a curate for my new church at littlemore i engaged a friend by no fault of his who before he had entered into his charge preached a sermon either in depreciation of baptismal regeneration or of dr pusey's view of it i showed a similar easiness as to the editors who helped me in the separate volumes of fleury's church history they were able learned and excellent men but their after history has shown how little my choice of them was influenced by any notion i could have had of any intimate agreement of opinion between them and myself i shall have to make the same remarks in its place concerning the lives of the english saints which subsequently appeared all this may seem inconsistent with what i have said of my fierceness i am not bound to account for it but there have been men before me fierce in act yet tolerant and moderate in their reasoning at least so i read history however such was the case and such its effects upon the tracks these at first starting were short hasty and some of them ineffective and at the end of the year when collected into a volume they had a slovenly appearance it was under these circumstances that dr pusey joined us i had known him well since eighteen twenty seven twenty eight and had felt for him an enthusiastic admiration i used to call him ah mehagazda his great learning his immense diligence his scholar-like mind his simple devotion to the cause of religion overcame me and great of course was my joy when in the last days of eighteen thirty three he showed a disposition to make common cause with us his tract on fasting appeared as one of the series with the date of december twenty one he was not however i think fully associated in the movement till eighteen thirty five and eighteen thirty six when he published his tract on baptism and started the library of the fathers he at once gave to us a position and a name without him we should have had little chance especially at the early date of eighteen thirty four of making any serious resistance to the liberal aggression but dr pusey was a professor and canon of christ church he had a vast influence in consequence of his deep religious seriousness the munificence of his charities his professorship his family connections and his easy relations with the university authorities he was to the movement all that mr rose might have been with that indispensable addition which was wanting to mr rose the intimate friendship and familiar daily society of the person who had commenced it and he had that special claim on their attachment which lies in the living presence of a faithful and loyal affectionateness there was henceforth a man who could be the head and centre of the zealous people in every part of the country who were adopting the new opinions and not only so but there was one who furnished the movement with a front to the world and gained for it a recognition from other parties in the university in eighteen twenty nine mr froude or mr robert wilberforce or mr newman were but individuals 
and when they ranged themselves in the contest of that year on the side of sir robert inglis men on either side only asked with surprise how they got there and attached no significance to the fact but dr pusey was to use the common expression a host in himself he was able to give a name a form and a personality to what was without him a sort of mob and when various parties had to meet together in order to resist the liberal acts of the government we of the movement took our place by right among them such was the benefit which he conferred on the movement externally nor were the internal advantages at all inferior to it he was a man of large designs he had a hopeful sanguine mind he had no fear of others he was haunted by no intellectual perplexity people are apt to say that he was once nearer to the catholic church than he is now i pray god that he may be one day far nearer to the catholic church than he was then for i believe that in his reason and judgment all the time that i knew him he never was near to it at all when i became a catholic i was often asked what of dr pusey when i said that i did not see symptoms of his doing as i had done i was sometimes thought uncharitable if confidence in his position is as it is a first essential in the leader of a party this dr pusey possessed pre-eminently the most remarkable instance of this was his statement in one of his subsequent defences of the movement when moreover it had advanced a considerable way in the direction of rome that among its more hopeful peculiarities was its stationariness he made it in good faith it was his subjective view of it dr pusey's influence was felt at once he saw that there ought to be more sobriety more gravity more careful pains more sense of responsibility in the tracts and in the whole movement it was through him that the character of the tracts was changed when he gave to us his tract on fasting he put his initials to it in eighteen thirty five he published his elaborate treatise on baptism which was followed by other tracts from different authors if not of equal learning yet of equal power and appositeness the catenas of anglican divines projected by me which occur in the series were executed with a like aim at greater accuracy and method in eighteen thirty six he advertised his great project for a translation of the fathers but i must return to myself i am not writing the history either of dr pusey or of the movement but it is a pleasure to me to have been able to introduce here reminiscences of the place which he held in it which have so direct a bearing on myself that they are no digression from my narrative end of chapter two part two